This show is dedicated in loving memory of Ryan Suenaga. Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. You're listening to the Open Apple Podcast, episode number four, recorded on Saturday, May 7th, 2011. This is Ken Gagney, recording from Framingham, Massachusetts. And this is Mike McGinnis in Denver, Colorado. Well, how you doing, Mike? I'm doing well, Ken. How have you been? I have been absolutely delightful. I'm so glad that spring is here. This is the first episode of Open Apple I am recording in shorts. Very nice. <laughs> Would they be loud Hawaiian shorts? No, but I am working on that. <laughs> Before we get into this month's news, I want to thank our previous guest, Peter Neubauer, because when he was on last month, he encouraged me to try again to get my Uthernet card up and running. As the Retro Computing Roundtable actually scooped us in their recent episode, I finally did get up and running. For the first time ever, I have an Apple II with broadband internet. Well, that's great. What are you using it for? Well, Peter knew that I was using a lot of ADT Pro to convert five and a quarter inch floppy disks to disk images on my Mac, and he recommended that getting the Ethernet up and running would allow me to transfer those disk images more quickly than I would over a serial cable, so that's primarily what I've used it for. I haven't installed any... 16-bit applications such as Spectrum Internet Suite or Ryan's Twitter client, but I, I just last night finished my batch of floppy disks that I've been working on for months, and now I hope to actually start playing with it a bit more. So was it actually that much faster? It wasn't jaw-droppingly faster like I hoped it would be, but it was definitely a significant improvement. In fact, when I was using my serial cable, I would start a disk image transfer, and then I'd switch over to my other Macintosh and start watching a YouTube video, and by the time the video was done, the disk image would be as well. But now, I would start the disk image transfer, watch the YouTube video, and I have to pause it like a quarter of the way through because the disk was done, I'd have to flop in a new floppy. Well, that's nice. Well, it is, but it really interrupted my slacking. <laughs> oh, well. Another Apple II item I recently wrote about was Jerry Ellsworth. It was just a uh, a random blog post about this hardware hacker who came to Kansas Fest a couple of years ago, and she hasn't been back in a few years. She and I are Facebook friends, and I've often thought about how indiscriminately she accepts friend requests, because I think she has 7,000 friend requests. She posted a link to my blog from her Facebook page, and now I understand why she has so many friends, because I got probably about 20 times more page views that one day than I've ever gotten in any other day. And that one day and now that entire month of April was the busiest month ever for my blog. Yeah, she's she's very popular. You've been at Kansas Fest with her, haven't you? I have. God, was it, what was it, 2006, I think? Uh, she showed up in, uh, in her roller skates <laughs> and just kind of wowed the attendees. It's interesting that usually you find either style or substance, and you would think that somebody who shows up in roller skates going through the Rockhurst cafeteria is just there for show, but she really impressed people with her knowledge of the Apple II, the Commodore 64, pinball machines. She really knows her stuff. Yeah, she's, uh, by all accounts, an excellent engineer. And if anybody is interested in learning more about her history, she was recently on an episode of the podcast called Triangulation, which I think is a spinoff of This Week in Tech, and it really was a, just an hour-long interview that gave some real depth to her story. Great. Fortunately, my WordPress site was able to host all that traffic. You have a WordPress site, Mike, that up until just recently, I was running for you, and uh, you were just providing the content, and we've now moved that from my hosting plan at DreamHost to yours. 
the problems that I was experiencing were related to the uh, to the WordPress dashboard mainly and page loads. They just took forever. I got timeouts, um, and it was a, a pretty frustrating experience trying to update my blog. Um, and so we moved moved it basically the the entire blog from your account over to mine. Yeah, the main reason we did that is because I have 16 WordPress sites on my account, and each site consumes a certain amount of memory, and more memory costs more money. And I have a budget that I was working in, which unfortunately didn't allow for the speed that you really needed for your site. But we were able to use uh, the Transmit FTP client to move the files right from your old domain to your new one. Well, the same domain, but different account. And then we used Navicat for the Mac to transfer the contents of the MySQL database from one account to the other. And it was a really smooth transition. I would say you probably had one hour of downtime altogether. Right, yeah, it went uh, a lot better than I'd expected. Transferring the 6502 Lane site of yours, Mike, was one of many projects I've been able to accomplish lately. The most significant one is the completion of my graduate degree. I just had my last class this past week for a master's degree in publishing. Congratulations. Thank you. It took me three years, and I'm proud to say that I was very often able to incorporate the Apple II into my studies. My final assignment was to give a presentation on why we should preserve the history of Kansas Fest. It was a class in nonprofit grant writing, and I hypothesized that there is a nonprofit called the Echoes of K-Fest, which is a name I borrowed from the Kansas Fest podcast, and I gave a presentation on what the Apple II is, what Kansas Fest is, what sort of things happen there, and why we need to make a more concerted effort to preserve this. Speaking of the history of Kansas Fest and the Apple II in general, we have somebody as our guest this month who knows a little bit about the subject. The curator of AppleIIHistory.org, Steve Wyrick. Hello, Steve. Hello. Hello, Dr. Steve. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Now, Steve, how long have you been an Apple II user? What brought you to the platform? I started in about 1980, back when I was in medical school. Uh, I had uh, access to actually a couple of old computers at that time. The uh, administrator of the pharmacy college had a uh, North Star Horizon computer, and uh, somehow I got wind of this and did a little work for him on it, mostly data entry of a database he wanted. And then he said, oh, by the way, over in our pharmacy administration, we have these uh, these other computers you might want to look at. And I went over there, and they had these two Apple II Pluses. Uh, they'd had to get them by uh, decide, uh, uh, marking them on their budget as calculators because the university would not let you buy computers without going through a significant process. Uh, and so I got to sit down and just uh, learn how to use it. I uh, had already learned Fortran in college, and transitioning to basic was pretty easy. Found a Nibble magazine and typed in a game from there, and after that I just I, I was hooked onto it. And there's been a parallel between your medical and technical histories ever since. Yes, that's right. I was using uh, uh, not AppleWorks, but the predecessor uh, uh, QuickFile that a uh, uh, listener wrote. Uh, I was using that to create a patient list when I had to go on rounds so I could keep up with who was on which room and what they were in the hospital for. And uh, AppleWorks was a big jump over that when, uh, with Speedwise when uh, that became available. And how did all that lead you to creating the Apple2History.org website that you now curate? Uh, one of the other things that they had over at in the pharmacy where there was actually was an Apple II plugged into a modem, uh, a 300 baud initially with the uh, handset that goes in the uh, cradle, and then later on a 1200 when they got really fast. I got a chance to do that, try uh, getting online a few places, actually was briefly on CompuServe, and then... Uh, 
they had a uh, project I could work on that uh, involved rewriting uh, an Apple II program they used for creating labels for IV drugs. And uh, the work I did on that for over like six months, the uh, administrator paid me enough money I was able to go out and pick, uh, pick up my very own first Apple II, which was an Apple IIc. Uh, that led me eventually to getting online with Genie, getting to know all the people there. And uh, at some point, I also joined the local Apple II user group in Omaha. They needed uh, some help with their newsletter. I started doing that picking up news items on Genie to uh, include with that. And uh, they wanted something more, so I thought, well, I could sit down and write something that explains how the Apple II came about. Because it, if you look at, of course, modern computing versus what we had back in the beginning, it's kind of odd to say I'm going to print something by typing PR number one, uh, or I'm going to reboot the disk by typing PR number six. Where'd that come from? So I kind of went into a, a, an explanation. I thought, well, I got to go back and say where this came from. So it brought me back to the very beginning. And then as I did it, I said, well, I got to explain, you know, the Apple IIc comes out of the Apple IIe, which came out of the II Plus. And so it just kind of presented itself in such a way that it developed into a historical overlook of everything. And I used these as newsletter articles and uh, eventually just uploaded it for free for people on Genie to use with uh, their newsletters across the country. After oh, I got tired of it at one point and just didn't do much with the Apple II for oh, some of the 90s. And uh, at some point, two guys that had been on Genie before had emailed me and said, uh, hey, could we put your history up uh, on our website? And I didn't know anything about HTML or creating websites at that time. I said, yeah, sure, go ahead and do it. And after it was up there and I got a little more interest in it, I uh, saw some things that could be improved and asked if I could... Uh, make those changes. They said that was fine and uh, ultimately uh, transferred it to uh, my own domain towards uh, the just after the 2000-2001 time period. Eventually brought it into WordPress uh, last year. I was recently going through some old five and a quarter inch floppies and I found versions of the Apple II history by Steve Weirich from 1992 or thereabouts. So this living document that you've created has been in existence in some form or another for almost two decades. Yes, it's uh, actually some of the oldest ones I saw in that were like 91. So 91 and 92 is probably when I had my more or less finalized uh, versions, uh, at least 1.0 versions I had up to uh, let people download. I'm, I'm thinking I got to come up with something to celebrate this 20 years and, and I'm still kind of scratching my head about how to do that. Do you think you'll ever be done writing the history of the Apple II? Oh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm kind of done writing it, uh, although every so often there is uh, uh, revisions that come about or little extra pieces here and there. That's what makes the blog much more useful because uh, if I learn something new that I don't really know how to fit it in there, rather than having to figure out how to stick it into the history that's already completed, I can just make a blog post. Uh, long, Not long ago, somebody on the Google Groups uh, what used to be Usenet uh, had posted something about security uh, coding on Apple II cassettes uh, back before there was significant penetration of the Apple II disk drive. And uh, I was interested, I was fascinated to hear that they actually had ways of copy protecting programs on cassette. 
and uh, came up with a little short blog post that pointed to some links about how that was uh, described elsewhere and just put it up as a post. That's, that's what makes the WordPress format so useful. I can just throw up a, a piece of information here and there. Beyond that, every so often I get something that is a clear correction, something I had wrong or some piece I had left out of a, a bit of the story, and I'll just go in and make that correction. I suppose in that sense, until the day comes that if it ever gets put into a paper form, the, it still has its chance to be a little bit uh, fluid and, and uh, uh, change it if I find I get little mistakes that can be fixed. And in addition to Apple II history, you've been famous for something else that we discussed in the March episode. Uh, Minecraft has uh, become a very popular game recently, and uh, Dr. Steve, didn't you do something in Minecraft? Yes, well, I... Uh, I've, that's a fascinating game because it's just you can sit down and within the constraints of these blocks that uh, look about as big as a cardboard box that you carry around and do things with, within those constraints there's a lot of interesting things people have built with them. And uh, I sat down and said, well, I'm going to make myself a, life, well, a greater than life-size model of the Apple II that I can walk around inside of. So I uh, created that. Uh, it took me about oh, probably a little over a month to remodel a mountain that was uh, uh -huh. nearby where I was uh, playing and uh, basically cut away everything that didn't look like an Apple II. And uh, when I was done, I have an Apple II Plus with a monitor and two floppy disk drives, and inside of it I've got uh, three peripheral cards I've built and uh, have uh, made a tour of it, uh, recorded a video, and put that up on YouTube as uh, something to uh, show everybody else. So, so within this this virtual world that that is Minecraft, you can actually walk around inside this Apple II Plus. Yes, it's uh, it's tall enough that uh, when you're inside, uh, the 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 top of the room is about two and a half times as tall as you, the character, are. So it's uh, I, I don't I haven't figured out what that scale size is yet, but that's uh, that's about the size you look up and you see the underside of the lid and you see the underside of where the keyboard would be and all the chips on the floor of the motherboard and so on. Oh, that's very cool. What are you going to build next? Um, I'm building an Apple store right now just uh, for something different to do. <laughs> Seriously? That's fantastic. Uh, some other people have done it and probably done a better job, uh, but uh, I, had a, I had a building I had uh, messed around with before I uh, did the Apple II, and it's just looking rather dated, and I said, I need to make some changes here. So I've, uh, I've made myself uh, my version of an Apple store. Are we going to get to see that at Kansas Fest? As long as uh, nobody destroys this world before I make a backup copy of it, <laughs> yes, we can, uh, we can show that. Are you going to have a little genius bar in the back? Actually, I did. I made a genius bar. I'm uh, <laughs> trying to find some science to put up in there. Uh, I wish I could make. That's the problem with it is that although you you want to make things like this, and then you want to make more detailed decorations for it, but you're limited by this box that's about. I guess if you could, it, it would be about a foot and a half by foot and a half size box in front of your face. That's about the smallest size of anything that you can do things with, and so that really limits your your ability to. Uh, uh, make stuff unless you want to make something that's extremely big and uh, then you get a little more detail. Before I did the Apple II Plus computer, I made the Apple Color Apple logo and that was huge. That's that's a very large thing I've got sitting out there in front of my building in Minecraft. Your Minecraft genius bar, is it staffed by creepers? Uh, I keep <laughs> the creepers as far away as possible because they just do nothing but destroy. <laughs> now I have a question for the two of you. In my mind, and also in the presentation I gave in my grad program recently, 
I consider both of you to be something akin to historians in the Apple II community because you're both very dedicated to chronicling and preserving the output that this community has generated in the last 30 years. How would you two distinguish your different approaches or philosophies to that? Oh, Mike, what do you think? I wasn't aware that I was doing that. Well, your Apple II scans website is certainly preserving the history of the Apple II. I think what that's about is trying to capture a snapshot in time of some of the documentation um, that was available. I started out doing that just for me personally to, to preserve that stuff because paper gets old and, and yellows and gets damaged and lost. And so I wanted a way to, to have that if, uh, if anything ever happened. And it just made sense to put that up on the web where other people could share that too. I, I don't know that I'm necessarily building a timeline in the way that uh, Dr. Steve did. Uh, I've got uh, a, a slightly similar approach. I have a few documents here and there that I've done scans of. Uh, years ago, I had somebody who sent me a box with a few items, including the uh, Blue Book, the uh, Apple II ba uh, AppleSoft reference manual uh, that I scanned last year and then got help from Bill Martins in creating a PDF out of that, which I have for download off the Apple II History website. So I have a couple of limited things that I've taken time to put up there. My my purpose has been mostly just creating a story, uh, trying to tell the story of the Apple II from the pre-days, the during the whole era, and the end, and you know what came a little bit of what came after. If I was going to be really complete, I'd sit down and, and actually try to talk about it and say, well, here's everything that happened after uh, the Apple II's demise. And the Kansas Fest itself would be a a uh, great thing to try to put together some summary of uh, each year of KFest and what was done and what happened there and, and uh, throw that into the mix. Uh, haven't got that info yet. Mike, what is your archive website? Apple2scans.net. Well, I'm going to have to add that to my links. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't think I had actually been aware of that till just now, so that's cool. Thank you. Inside yeah. the Apple IIc and IIe and what's where. Yep. I'm trying to scan stuff that hasn't been previously scanned. Sure, sure. So, I mean, it, this, it started, I had the Computist Project web page, and, and I, I wrapped that up in 2006. You know, and it was just sort of sitting there and dormant, so I moved that over here as the Computist Archive. You had the Computist stuff also then? Yes, yep. Now, that was a lot of uh, issues to scan, wasn't it? 89 issues plus all of the extra books. And there were several different sister magazines that lasted for a little while, and those got scanned. It was a long project, but I had a lot of help, so that was good. Excellent. And I know I've got the Computist magazine mentioned somewhere, but I don't remember if I've got the full start and end dates on those or not. Well, you're free to obviously browse around and see if there's anything useful in there for you. You know, it's funny. Over the years, I've collected pictures, and I, when I first started collecting pictures, I didn't bother to figure out where I got them from, so there's a lot that simply don't have attribution on them. But I'm finding with the web more robust than it once was. Used to, I used to have to worry about, I'm going to make this a really small file so it doesn't take long to load this, you know, because we're <laughs> yeah, doing HTML at, at 56K or less, you know. But now right. it's like oh, it can be two, two megabytes. It doesn't matter because it doesn't load very. Uh, doesn't take long to load, 
and I'm looking at some of my pictures of magazine covers, and I'm thinking, those are pretty dinky. <laughs> so, well, yeah, and in fact, see, I started scanning computers in like 98 or so, you know, back when everybody was mm-hmm. on 56K, and so I had to keep the the files small, and they were JPEGs, and uh, so a lot of those early issues are actually fairly low quality, so I think when I got a couple of the things I want to finish scanning first, and then I'm going to go back through and do them, redo them as a high-quality uh, scan. What's, uh, what's your scan uh, uh, size that you choose now? How many bits or uh, dots per inch? Uh, right now it's 600 DPI. Um, 600, okay. 600 DPI TIFF files. Uh, I do black and white, uh, the, the one bit rather than the, the grayscale, just because you get a lot of bleed through with grayscale. Yes, yes. Have either of you tried the Visioneer Mobility Scanner? I was looking at that. That was in your uh, your list there, and I have not tried that because that's a single page scan through. Um, you know, if I'm willing to destroy a book, then that'd probably be a useful thing. Yeah, the Visioneer Mobility I like, but not for the sort of archival stuff that you do. It's less than a pound and a half. It's only about the size of maybe a rolling pin. You can feed individual pages in at a time, or even a small photo like a four by six or whatever. It does it at 300 DPI, uh, JPEG or PDF, uh, one page per 10 seconds. So since it's not a flatbed and doesn't have a feeder, you're limited in the dimensions and the quantity of pages that you can feed it. But if you just have, for example, some credit card bills or even a shoebox full of old photos that you want to scan, it's really nice. I imagine for that that purpose it would be excellent, yeah. And especially if you add in the iFi card, which is a SanDisk card with built-in Wi-Fi, you plug that into your scanner. And the scanner itself is wireless. It doesn't connect to even a power outlet. You just plug in a memory card, USB or SanDisk, and it scans right to that. And if you use an iFi card, it can automatically send everything you scan right onto your computer. That's handy. I, I've been wanting to check out one of those iFi cards. Cool. Yeah, I, I heard that uh, somebody, and this may be ur- urban legend, but somebody's had a camera with one of those iFi cards and it was stolen and they were able to track it down because it was sending pictures that the thief was taking. <laughs> yes, the photos can be geotagged. That's true. The iFi card, I think, starts at $40, but right, and the scanner is around 190 Right now, Newegg.com is having a special where you get the scanner with a 4-gig iFi card for $195, including shipping. Sounds like a pretty good deal. I tried a Friends, and I was just so sold on it that I immediately went out and bought my own. So how cool. quickly uh, can you do a photograph with that? I would say, well, five seconds. Because I have many photos I've been scanning in to do archiving of uh, our our own family history, <laughs> and uh, it it's not too bad with a scanner, but uh, it is putting them all on the flatbed, getting them straight, scanning them, then breaking them up with Photoshop. It takes <clears throat> a little time. It might be easier with this. Very much so. My mother has many family albums in which the pictures are stored. And she was slowly peeling them out one by one from the album. And I was scanning them faster than she could hand them to me. Mm-hmm. So if I were to say that you're, that each of you exist in the overarching class of historian, perhaps your subclass would be, Steve, you're more of a, a chronicler. And Mike, you're an archivist. Sure. Okay, I'll take that. That sounds, that sounds good. Now, which one has more hit points? <laughs> <laughs> Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. There's been a lot of news for both 8-bit and 16-bit Apple II users lately. 
Mike, what's topping your list this month? We saw a demonstration of the Apple IIc SmartPort virtual uh, hard drive. Uh, uh, there was a YouTube video posted about that. Uh, Dr. Steve, you'd mentioned that uh, your first computer was a, an Apple IIc. Did you have any kind of SmartPort hard drive back then? Yes. Uh, after anybody starting to use a computer, after a while, you start thinking, this floppy disk I have just doesn't hold enough. I want to run more programs. And I was happy to get a hard drive, uh, like a 20 megabyte hard drive that would plug into the 2C uh, not too long after I was able to get it. Uh, and when I saw this video of the uh, smart port hardware-based hard drive, I can't remember if it was uh, a CFF or a SD card or whatever they were using there, but that was just very reminiscent of how fast it would start up when you could go to the hard drive instead of having to wait for everything to come up on the floppy. So even though it's through the, the smart port itself, it's still significantly faster than a floppy drive. Oh, definitely. Well, any time you could run something that wasn't uh, having to read those bits off of a spinning 140k disk, it was uh, it was always going better, uh, faster. It was just made every it just made life much easier. Back in our first episode, we talked about the compact flash for the Apple IIc, which previously hasn't been possible because the Apple IIc has no expansion ports. I don't think I saw the YouTube demo that you guys are talking about. Is this a demo of the same thing, or is this a new product? I think it's more of a hack that somebody's created. I don't get the impression that it was a product they were ready to release. Uh, it looked like they were just demonstrating that it was possible to do it, and here it is starting up from this thing. I agree. I don't know that this is something that's, that we're going to see for sale anytime soon to, to Apple II users. But they were able to connect a mass storage device to the Apple IIc through the smart port, basically? Yes. Yes. Uh, in, the, in the demo video, it looks like a USB drive, one of those huh. little, little thumb drive things. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So yeah. when they start it up, there's no disk in the internal floppy drive. It makes its grinding noise, and then it switches to the next disk down, which is slot 5, and that's the smart port. And then it starts up mouse desk uh, on, the, on the video demo. Hmm. Yeah, it's very cool. I mean, that would be, as we discussed with a similar product three months ago, useful for any Apple II user, not just Apple IIc, because not everybody wants to use up one of their valuable expansion ports to have this sort of functionality. Yeah, that was the nice thing. As much as they made the IIc as a, as a sort of a non-expandable thing, the smart port gave it some expandability that uh, it wouldn't have had otherwise, and that's why they could somebody could come up with a hard drive for it, and that's why somebody today using that same uh, smart port uh, format can make a uh, USB-based device. Well, who knows what else they could do with the Apple IIc? Well, in fact, somebody did find another use for the Apple IIc uh, over on Hackaday.com. Kevin Dady posted a multi-part article where he connected his, connected his Apple IIc to weatherunderground.com through a Linux box um, and displays updated weather maps on his, on his Apple IIc. It uh, runs through a serial cable to a PC running Linux Mint, um, and he said that this is certainly not the fastest means um, to display your weather map. It's, it takes, he said, 8 to 12 minutes to render the, the map on the 2C. Yes, and he's using high-res graphics, of course, to do it. Uh, so that's maybe part of it, but I think the connection, the serial port connection, sounded like it was the bigger problem in terms of speed. Yeah, and, yeah, and he goes uh, really in-depth in this, this series of articles here about the scripts that he uses uh, that he wrote to do this and the software, and it's, I think, a very cool thing. Definitely. So that requires your 2C be connected to another machine. It's not pulling the information down directly, right? Yes, no, I, don't, it, I don't think we have anything to do, uh, or do we have anything to do with Ethernet-type connections with the Apple IIc yet? I cannot recall. I don't think we do. 
No. Yeah, that lack of slots is a limitation in this era. Well, as I mentioned, I've been using the Ethernet with ADD Pro, which just got updated this month. It's ironic that he just now updated it because I was having some trouble getting my ADD Pro to work with Ethernet to trying to figure out the gateway and netmask and router and IP server and everything. The newest version of ADD Pro 1.1.9 offers DHCP, which that's right. So this allows ADD Pro to automatically configure itself on a network. Nice. Assuming that you have a DHCP server. Right. And there have been a couple of other bug fixes, but that DHCP, in my opinion, is a significant improvement. Because I remember when I first put any computer on the internet back in 97, you had to get this long list of dotted numbers from your host provider. And it was just such a pain to punch them all in. And now DHCP can just do it all for you. Yeah, that's a very handy upgrade. Over at uh, h2central.com, Sean Fahey posted uh, that the CFFA 3000 might actually make an appearance at Kansas Fest. This has been a long-awaited card, I think, by many Apple II users, and I, I, for one, am looking forward to seeing it firsthand. Yeah, Rich Dreyer posted the update on his site, which is where Sean noticed it. I was on the phone with Rich Dreyer about a week ago talking about this product, which is a means to access compact flash and I think USB mass storage volumes on any Apple II that has expansion ports. And he was concerned that this card... It's also a floppy drive controller, so when you have installed it, it physically takes up one slot, but it virtually takes up two slots, one for the mass storage features and one for the floppy drive. And he is concerned that Apple II users who are already very protective of their limited number of slots wouldn't want this card. But I don't think that's a great concern because those features are optional. You can enable it for mass storage you can, or you can enable it for floppy drive, in which case it takes up just one for either one or you can use both so i've been putting off buying any sort of mass storage device for the apple II for ages because i've been waiting for this card yeah this seems like kind of a, a very nice all-in-one solution for all of your storage needs on a uh, on an apple II, and i really can't imagine there being uh, any lack of desire for this card with apple II users yeah, he mentioned that if he signed up for Kansas fest that would light the fire for him to finally finish this project so we may see something being commercially available in just about two months. Cool. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Steve, do you have a CFFA? The only uh, Apple II that I have that works right now is an Apple II GS, and uh, I haven't really done anything with it uh, to introduce it to the modern world. I still have my old SCSI hard drive, uh, which I think mm -hmm. runs, and a, fl a floppy disk goes with it, but I don't have that. I did get a couple years ago a uh, Apple IIe at KFS that I have never yet figured out if it works or not. I'm thinking I'm going to bring that this year, and uh, it'd be interesting to see if a mass storage device is available and uh, functions. Well, also at Kansas Fest, if you want, you can further bring your Apple II into the modern era by signing up for Vince Briel's workshop. A couple of years ago, he offered any Kansas Fest attendee who wanted to buy an Apple I replica that he sells uh, as an unassembled kit, a free workshop in which he would help people construct it into the final working product. This year, he'll be doing the same thing, except this event will also mark the first time this product has been commercially available, and that product is an MP3 player. This is an expansion card that he first demoed at Kansas Fest 2009 and will finally be sold at Kansas Fest 2011, except, again, it'll be a kit and people will build it. It costs $100 on top of your registration fee, and when you're done building it in the workshop, you'll have your very own expansion card into which you can plug a USB volume that has MP3s on it, and it will play those MP3s. 
and the card itself will be silkscreened with the Kansas Fest logo, making this a limited item. Ooh. So does this play through the Apple II speaker, or is there a speaker that plugs into this card? I don't know. I'm sorry. I was kind of wondering how you would make that thing work. Uh, when I'd heard about it, I, was, I had that thought in my mind. How does this work? I'm pretty sure it plays it through the Apple II speakers. If you happen to have speakers plugged directly into the Apple II, that will work. But I know that he showed a piece of software that, in basic purpose, if not full features, could be described as iTunes for the Apple II. I imagine that since the hardware is plugged into the Apple II and the software is running on the Apple II, that the sound also comes through the Apple II. It would be fun to see something that's iTunes-like running on the Apple II. <laughs> that would be something. Can you, a couple of years ago, you also took Vince Briel's Apple One replica building session, didn't you? I did. And how was that? It was a lot of fun, and he's a great teacher. I had never soldered before, but he was very patient, and he had enough soldering kits there that I didn't have to go out and buy my own just for the purpose of this workshop. My concern, though, was that this was the first time in a long time that Kansas Fest had concurrent tracks in which you had to choose to either be in one place or the other. And as a result of attending this workshop, I missed basically four hours of Kansas Fest. So was it worth it, missing the four hours? Yes, absolutely. Without a doubt, no regrets. I totally am happy with my Apple One. I don't know if I find the experience of building an Apple II MP3 player sufficiently different from what I've already done now that I've, by Vince's own words, have become a master solderer. <laughs> and also, like I've said, we do have a limited number of ports, and I put an Ethernet card in my Apple II. I'm planning on buying a CFFA 3000. I don't know if I would necessarily use an MP3 card. However, I can't think of anything that is just cooler to do with your Apple II than play MP3s. Definitely. Oh, speaking of songs, I have a news item which is only tangentially related to the Apple II. Jonathan Mann is a musician who, on January 1st, 2009, challenged himself to create a song a day. Have any of you ever seen his work? No, nope, not familiar with him. No. Ah, interesting. Well, he's been posting to YouTube every day for the last two and a half years or so, an original song that he has written, composed, and performed. They run the gamut of topics, and the reason I know about him is because on August 10th, 2010, the song that he released was called That's Just the Waz, and it was released the day before Steve Wozniak's 60th birthday, and the song was all about what a great guy Steve Wozniak is. Well, Jonathan Mann recently got on Kickstarter, which is the crowdsourcing approach to funding that Jason Scott used a couple of years ago to get get lamp finished jonathan mann had noted that all these songs that he's done have been individual works and he's missed the collaborative aspect of music and so when his 1000th song comes out on september 28th of this year he wants to celebrate it by releasing an album that he is recording with other musicians so what he's going to do is he's going to create 30 songs over the th course of the 30 days of june each one with other musicians all 30 songs will be put up for vote. The 10 most popular songs will make it onto an album that he'll release at the end of this year. He asked for $10,000 to be kickstarted to fund this project, and he got just over 12000 So that album will become a reality. Excellent. Well, thanks for the pointer. I'll have to check that out. He must be very creative to be able to come up with a song a day uh, and have them be all unique. Yeah, I, that had occurred to me. Steve, you're essentially the Apple II community's resident musician. Well, well I, I can do parodies of songs uh, that somebody else has written. That's about it. Do you think you could do one a day? 
Uh, definitely not. <laughs> Jonathan Mann's creativity just must be inexhaustible, and I'm very glad to see that he was able to complete this project. I haven't listened to all of Jonathan Mann's songs, but I have listened to many episodes of the Retro Mac cast, which recently celebrated its 200th weekly episode. Wow. Are either of you listeners? I am. I listen every week. Yes, I, uh, I've started that in the last year. That's right. There are even listeners of you, Steve. They played one of your songs recently. They did. I don't know if they knew it was me because they mentioned <laughs> my YouTube name when they mentioned it, but still, uh, they, they did. I sent an email saying I've got this song, and uh, he included it just after uh, the new year. The Open Apple podcast only records monthly instead of weekly, but if anybody's downloaded our episodes, you'll notice that the file name has space for three digits to represent the episode number. So we are uh, compliant with up to 999 episodes, which would take us 83 years to record. I'm sure the, the, the nursing home that we'll be in by then will be accommodating when we're re recording our podcasts. Well, I think even if we can live up to RMC's 200-episode record, that would be a, quite the accomplishment. That will take us only 17 years. Ah, yes. <laughs> so that would be the year 2028, I believe. I'm sure there'll still be Apple II users around then. I'll be a little elderly by that time, but <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> try to join you on. Try to join you on that episode. Instead of being a historian, you'll be history. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'll be. And I mean that. Uh, I mean that in the optimistic sense of living history. I'll be pushing, pushing sixty by then, which means Ken should be almost twenty. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. In other vintage podcast-related news. Uh, the Retro Computing Roundtable returns with a new format, which I'm actually happy to see because uh, David had recently announced on his blog and in the in the podcast that RCR would be going on hiatus for a while. So it's good to see that it was a short break. Now, I think the format has changed. Is that right? I think they have fewer rotating guests. It's down to just David Grealish, Earl Evans of RetroBits, and Carrington Vanson of 1 Megahertz. So it'll be the three of them every month. And also it's every four weeks instead of every three. And the show is essentially unedited. It's basically just recorded and then published raw. A stream of consciousness. Exactly. Which I know from experience dramatically cuts down on the amount of effort that is required to put out a podcast. I've often considered Open Apple and Retro Computing Roundtable to have something of a friendly rivalry because we started outlining the concept for Open Apple back in August, and before we could get our first episode out, they beat us to the punch with a new show. While we're debating whether or not we should have more guests on the show than just you and me, Mike, they go ahead and have like three or four people per episode, grabbing up all the hottest names in the retro community, and then they go off the air, basically. And I, I thought, oh, well, that was something that we were trying to live up to, and where's that rivalry now? And so I thought to myself, well, what if instead of every three weeks, which is pretty ambitious, you did every month like we do? And what if you had fewer guests and thus less content like we do? And I don't know if we were just thinking the same things or if you cribbed my notes, but this new format for RCR seems a little bit more like Open Apple. I agree, although I do like the idea of having Earl Evans and Carrington Vanston on there because Earl is a, a diehard Commodore guy. And then, of course, Carrington Vanston is an Apple II guy, and that's always an interesting dynamic to see. I did notice that the last time they had their show, despite the fact they had uh, two Apple II guys and one Commodore, it seems like the Commodore was still getting bashed. <laughs> Maybe they should bring Jerry Ellsworth on the show to balance things out even further. There we go. And speaking of Carrington, he also put out a new 1 megahertz episode. Have you had a chance to listen to that? I have. 
And how was it? Well, don't you know? I have not listened to it yet. <laughs> I've been a bad Apple II user. It was pretty fun. He reviewed a game, which is his trademark or signature item that he does every episode. He is such a character. And if you've met him at the one Kansas Fest he came to, you know that. But there are very few podcasts that capture a person's character so well as one megahertz does for Carrington. And it's just so much fun to hear him blather away about the Apple II. He seems very natural at what he does while it's uh, while he's recording it. Yeah, he is a natural performer. And I'm told from both 1 megahertz and the Retro Computing Roundtable that he will be at both the Vintage Computer Festival, which is this week, and Kansas Fest, which is in two months. Hooray! That's good. Yeah, I will be going to VCF. I was, despite the many times I said on this podcast I was going to go, I actually was waffling for a bit there because that is the weekend before my graduate commencement, and there I had underestimated how many other things would be going on that weekend. But I finally did work out a schedule. I'm going to be at VCF this Saturday from 2 to 7 p.m., which are the hours it's open for exhibits and dealers. I'll be there in the evening as well, but I won't be there at all on Sunday. But it will be good to see Carrington, and I suspect Andy Malloy, Henry Corbis, Jim O'Reilly, and I will be missing Ivan Drucker, who will be there only on Sunday, which is just the opposite of me. But it'll still be fun to hang out with some retro computing people prior to Kansas Fest. Sounds like it's going to be a great event. Have you ever been to one, Steve? I have not, no. Uh, I've heard all the things about what's going on this year, and it sounds like it's something that would be uh, good to make time for some year. Because I know they have VCF East and West. I'm pretty sure they also have a VCF Midwest, but I think that's still probably like in the Ohio River Valley, which is quite a hike from Omaha. I'd call that more (laughs) Mideast. I think the Middle East is something Yes. (laughs) You don't want to go there for the vintage computers. Uh, as a very brief aside, since we were talking about multiple retro computing platforms like the Commodore, I was reading an article about law enforcement firearms by Richard Fairburn. Don't ask me why I was reading this. And he was talking about how 25 years ago he adapted a program from the Apple II to the Atari 64. A what? Yeah, I was wondering, does he know what he's talking about? Is that... I know Atari had a lot of machines with numbers after them, like 800 and 2600, I'm wondering, if is this one that I've never heard of, or is he amalgamating Atari with the Commodore 64? I'm guessing the Commodore would have sued Atari immediately for that. <laughs> All right, so it's not a part of computing history that I somehow overlooked. No, I don't think so. Okay, but there is some computer history that's coming back to life. Yes, that's true, Ken. In fact, Byte Magazine is coming back uh, beginning in July it's going to be an online-only magazine. And Byte, of course, was never strictly an Apple II magazine or really even an Apple magazine. They covered a whole range of computing topics back then. But uh, the Apple II connection here is that Gina Smith is going to be the new editor and publisher of Byte, and she was also the co-author of iWaz. I guess she's been she's been talking about this a lot on uh, Twit, on the, the Twit episodes that she's been on recently. Uh, where she's been on a hiring tear trying to get uh, writers and, and people. So I'm really looking forward to, to seeing what uh, Gina does with, with the new Byte. Is this actually the same entity that used to be Byte Magazine, or is it just the name? Any idea if there's any connection to what we once knew as Byte? Well, uh, apparently several of the writers that Gina's hiring back uh, were the originals from the old Byte Magazine, including Jerry Pornell, who wrote the popular Chaos Manor column. Oh, neat. That's quite the all-star cast. Yep, and I think that she actually went so far as to purchase all of the intellectual property from the original Byte 
corporation. So I had a couple of articles I uh, stuck on the Apple II History website that were in an interview with Steve Wozniak, I think. Uh, I can't remember which one it was. There's a couple of articles I put on the Apple II History website that I took from Byte magazine and adapted them uh, for HTML back in the day. And when eight, when Byte was still in some sort of a previous uh, life, they gave me permission to it uh, with a long disclaimer I stuck at the end of it. And recently I saw they changed, tried to get the permission again. And somebody said, well, we'll talk to our lawyers and get back to you. And they haven't. So it looks like this might be why they're getting this new uh, site going. I'll have to contact them again. It'll be especially interesting if they have some sort of historical archive that has old Byte content. I don't think that's likely, though. Yeah, that would be neat to see, but um, I'm guessing that's not going to be one of their priorities. Did either of you read I Was, which Gina Smith wrote? I listened to the audiobook. Does that count? Since this is an audio podcast, I would say yes. Okay, then I've read I Was. And I have the book, and I've gotten about halfway through it. I have a lot of Facebook friends that I may not necessarily know in person, and one of them is Steve Wozniak. I noticed about a month ago in his status updates that he had checked in on Foursquare to a place in Boston, which is just down the road from me. And it turns out that he was actually here for an event that my friend Chris attended, and we happen to have him in the studio as well. Hey, Ken, thanks for having me on. So Chris here is a web designer for Cold Spring Design, through which... The current Kansas Fest website was designed, actually, and Chris, on his own time, also created our last five Kansas Fest logos before we passed it on to Peter, who was our guest last month. That's not what happened to bring you to meet Woz, though. No, what? no. Surprisingly enough, it was uh, with the Greater Worcester Humanists. Uh, we all took a trip out to Boston for the American Humanist Association's uh, conference for uh, 2011 was here in Boston. Yeah, it was quite the event. He came out to speak on the last day. He was uh, an award winner. Uh, he won one of our Humanism Awards for the year. Uh, and he had quite a presence. He talked mostly tech. Surprisingly enough, he, he was given over an hour to speak, and he uh, went into, what's the word, when robots become sentient? Oh. Uh, the singularity? The singularity. Huh? So he went strongly into the singularity for quite a while, and Unfortunately, he lost quite a bit of the audience because he was very all over the place with his topics. It was interesting. I did hear uh, later, and this was from an unconfirmed source, but he uh, had told them originally he doesn't do prepared material. He doesn't come out and speak for an hour normally. So it took some coaxing to get him out to come out and speak to us. But uh, he did come out, and it was a very stream-of-consciousness kind of conversation. And uh, it was interesting because he kept mentioning, and we found it kind of ironic, he kept mentioning the coming age of the android and he kept calling it androids are going to take over the world and and androids are going to be our our our, our leaders and all this kind of thing and uh you know of course all us iphone fans are snickering huh, you know android versus ios you know. <laughs> but uh it was really interesting because then he took questions afterwards and uh, he only had a few minutes like uh maybe 10 15 minutes for questions and uh, he took a few from the audience most were about uh the philosophy of our group but then uh uh, they ended up cutting off the line at one point, and they let someone else go in after that. And it was actually uh, one of five people from Apple who Apple paid to come out and uh, be able to come to this conference and to come see Wise, which was really, really cool. So it was five Apple employees, didn't ask anything specific, just kind of, you know, told them how much they loved them and how much they loved the company. And uh, and, and 
so that happened, and uh, and it was a really cool experience. So then after that, he stuck around and, and uh, signed a few things. People were bringing up, like, you know, the Apple stickers from their iPods, and uh, my buddy Chris had his iPad signed on the back. And since my iPad has a bit of a defect, I had him sign the smart cover for mine, but uh, he seemed slightly offended at first. I was like, oh, no, no, it's only because I have to return the iPad. <laughs> he was a really nice, nice guy. He often got sidetracked. It was funny. He was often... Uh, he would stop with people in line and talk to them for too long. The person there, I guess called the, his handler with air quotes, was, you know, kind of tra- trying to speed him up, but he was very cool taking conversations. One thing he did do when he, he was signing mine, I asked him quickly, because I've always wondered if this was true, if the Apple logo had any connection to the Garden of Eden and the uh, Apple from the Tree of Knowledge. That would be a really cool, you know, uh, image to have uh, as their logo is the taking a bite from the tree of knowledge. I thought that fit more than the the apple from uh, Newton, but he did deny that completely. He said he's heard it before, but it's absolutely not true. <laughs> now, just to back up for a sec, this was a annual meeting of the American Humanist Association. In a nutshell, what is humanism? Humanism is um, basically how do we do good here on Earth? It's a it's a system of uh, moral guidelines, very loose that um, hmm, has been somewhat not hijacked by the atheist movement, but it's the atheists that have gotten past the, you know, I'm an atheist, I don't like religion, into the, okay, now what do I do? Now how do I live life morally? How do I uh, find a community here in my area? And it's fantastic for things like that. But there are also uh, a lot of Jewish humanists, Christian humanists. So it's a pretty varied, uh, large political spectrum, but uh, overall just, community of people who get together every once in a while. And was Waz invited to speak at this event and win this award, I think the Isaac Asimov Award, because he's really a famous humanist or because he has done a lot of great work in the name of humanism? He's done both. Um, one thing I did discover that he was, he's one of the, uh, he's someone on the board or something of the uh, EFF, the uh, <laughs> Electronic, Frontier, Electronic Foundation. Frontier Foundation. Yes, he was on there. He's he's done quite a few other humanitarian efforts. Yeah, so it was it was a bit of his uh, scientific ability and how much he kickstarted the computer industry, and uh, or the personal computer industry, and how much how how uh, philanthropic he's been since then. Now, when I saw him speak at Kansas Fest 2003, he pulled out a sheet of uncut $2 bills. Is he still doing that? Yeah, the $2 bills were mentioned. Uh, he talked about how he'll drive up to a, uh, you know, McDonald's and then cut out, you know, the $2 bills. That was uh, an entertaining story. You know, look, look at the reactions of people. But, uh, yeah, he was, I, I as soon as I had heard that story, it was too late. I, I wish I had, you know, $2 <laughs> bills on me. <laughs> how long did his uh, talk last, did you say? Uh, to be honest, it was a little rambling. <laughs> he did lose some of the crowd just because it was so all over the place. It, it was definitely engineer speak. It was definitely topic to topic, very advanced stuff, very interesting. But, you know, the, the non-technical people in the audience, which was most of them, most of them are, you know, philosophers and, you know, wannabe philosophers and things like that. But uh, it was it was interesting. I think he went for over 45 minutes to an hour and then took about 15 minutes for uh, questions. I think the rambling approach seems to be like what I remember it being at Kansas Fest, too. He just kind of went and just told stories. He does have a tendency to ramble, and, and it's a good thing. Um, if you if you see any of the uh, Computer History Museum videos where he's giving a presentation, he'll just go on and on and on, and the stories are always great, you know, mm-hmm. so they just let him talk. And I'm pretty sure the Kansas Fest speech he gave was recorded by Syndicom and is available on DVD. Was the AHA presentation recorded anywhere? 
I, I don't believe so. Unfortunately, uh, we're hoping to get those recorded at some point, but uh, not this one. But yeah, overall, it was a cool event. He was a really nice guy and chatting with people and uh, yeah, very approachable. And he brought an awesome picture of him on his Segway and chatted about his Segway quite oh. a bit. <laughs> Is he still playing a Segway polo? Yes, yes, he, he did mention that. I heard that when he was on the Big Bang Theory this past year, he arrived on the show set on his Segway. Did he do that here as well? No, unfortunately. I was hoping for, you know, maybe fireworks coming out the back or something, but no, no no Segway to this. He was great on uh, on Big Bang Theory, though. That was funny. <laughs> I haven't seen that episode yet. I'm looking forward to the DVD. Cool. Well, I think that's just about it for that topic, huh? Yeah, thank you for very much for having me on. That was great. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. Thank Chris. you. Yes. Now get out. (laughs) (laughs) What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. One of the disadvantages of doing a monthly podcast as opposed to a weekly one is that a lot of these eBay items expire long before we get to record about them. But in some cases, they're just so good you got to talk about them anyway. For example, there is one auction by the Vintage Computer Museum. That's not the Computer History Museum of Mountain View, California, but rather just an eBay user named Vintage Computer Museum. The item was going for $199,999.99 and claimed to consist of this owner's 40-year history of vintage computers, including 60-70 to Apple IIe computers, disk drives, Texas Instruments, Next Cubes, Commodores, AT&T machines, Tandys, Compacts, and older video game systems. The Vintage Computer Museum was actually pulled. Oh, I thought it looked like it had sold. Uh, I, I think it just ended because if you if you go and look at his other items, all of those computers that he was talking about are for, are for sale as individual items. I'm guessing somebody sat down and said, you're not going to get $200,000 for this. Yeah, that would be a little high price to... Send yeah. through eBay or through uh, PayPal. Yep. Of course, if you're looking to spend a little bit less money, um, there's an Engelbart mouse engineering prototype uh, available for only $15,000. Douglas Engelbart, of course, was the inventor of the mouse. The thing about this auction is that it doesn't actually say he had anything to do with this particular model, only that it was one of the ones manufactured in the 60s back when... This sort of thing was very rare. and Sometimes it's fun just to talk about the weird, stupid items that you see on, on eBay. For example, uh, I came across this auction, and the title reads, Apple Macintosh Vintage 2E Boxes, Rare, Monitor, etc. Now, when you read that, at least in my head, I'm thinking, okay, well, it, it's a 2E, and it includes the monitor and the boxes and everything else. No, this actually is just the empty boxes. Which, you know, for somebody who wants to be a completist collector is kind of cool until you see there's a $225 buy it now for this thing. What? Yeah. You look at the pictures when you're scrolling through this auction and it starts with the closed boxes on the outside. And the further you get, you know, I think one of them, maybe halfway down, is just an open box. And you keep expecting to see the Apple equipment and it's just not there because it's just the boxes. You'd have to be a pretty hardcore to get that. Yeah, and you know what? If you're listening out there to this podcast and you decide that you need to have these boxes for $225, please send me an email because I would love to hear what went on in your mind when you bought these things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have plenty of boxes I'd love to get rid of. <laughs> exactly. 
Blake Patterson at the Bite Cellar recently destroyed a bunch of his boxes because, like he said, he would much rather use that space for the computers than he would for the boxes. Right. Yeah, I think I think the boxes are kind of neat for the completest collector, but you know, I, I don't, they don't really add anything to the usability of the items. Yeah, it's all about whether you're collecting and potentially reselling. Right. Well, I found a auction for uh, an end date of May May eighth. Excuse me. Uh, for one of the Apple II Plus Bell and Howell uh, versions, the uh, Darth Vader ones, uh, really for a nice price, uh, is the current bid on that at this time is 126.99, and they're estimating $30 shipping for the computer, a disk drive, and a monitor. That's almost everything else on eBay is identified as very rare, but that would be a cool item to have. Now, does this one have the multimedia? attachment that goes on the back of these things i think that's what came with all these things uh, uh as they as they were sold to schools they had that on there automatically uh, that's yeah. what distinguished it from the regular apple twos i've seen a, I've, the reason i ask is i've seen some of these uh, bell and howells on ebay before and they don't have that anymore either it's been lost or damaged or, or whatever mm. over time they don't show the picture of the back of it so it doesn't really say for sure if it is or is not there hmm might be worth asking if you're going to bid on that. So how does this differ from a regular Apple II Plus? It's black. It's black, yes. Is that why they call it Darth Vader? Yes, yes. Like his his helmet. No, they uh, had a standard Apple II Plus, but uh, sort of uh, made it a little bit more rugged for school use. I think the lid was uh, I, uh, made to screw down, and uh, they made it so you could plug items into the back of it, and it was harder to... Uh, uh, mess up the pins. So for a joystick, you didn't have that uh, the little dip switch, or uh, the dip pins, but instead you had a real plug that would uh, be more durable. Cool. Uh, I also came across a couple of uh, vintage Apple uh, wristwatches. Um, one of them is, is listed as a, an 18-carat plated Apple watch, and it has the uh, big rainbow Apple icon right in the middle of it. And the other one is one of the old black rubber wrist band Timex watches with a smaller icon. You know, that piece of Apple II apparel reminds me of the Apple II GS College shirt that we talked about in the February episode. I said I had never seen it at a Kansas Fest, and I don't know why anybody would want to wear it at Kansas Fest because it's so hot. However, I was recently flipping through Volume 9, Issue 2 of Juice GS, which is available for a free download from the Juice GS website, and there's a picture of Andrew Rowan wearing that same shirt on his way to Kansas Fest. So I stand corrected. It does exist. It's a real product. There was a copy of Risk on eBay recently for the Apple II, which I actually wanted to buy, and it only went for about maybe 12 or 13 bucks. Unfortunately, it ended on Cinco de Mayo, and I was too busy partying that day to sit on the computer and snipe an auction. There's another risk right now that's available for twenty two ninety nine. Buy it now. Ooh, I want it. Yep. Wait, twenty two ninety nine. Yep. Buy it now. I, I don't want it. Ship. Okay. Don't want it that bad. <laughs> well, I mean, the other risk went for ten bucks. Yeah, that's uh, a good price. And then there was twelve bucks of shipping on top of that. Well, this is five dollars shipping, and it looks like the whole thing. Hmm. Maybe. Okay. I also have risk on the. Xbox 360 and includes I sent you Steve that video includes a uh, a robot antagonist named Commandant 64. Nice. Actually I'm sorry Commandant 64, but yeah. It was very satisfying to 
pulverize him. <laughs> but another auction that I saw that did interest me was a pretty simple, mundane accessory, and that would be a pram battery for the Apple II GS. This says it's a 3.6 volt ROM 1 2GS battery. And the reason it interests me is twofold. One, it's only 10 bucks, and my Apple II GS, when I pulled it out of the closet two years ago after 11 years in storage, its battery had died, so I actually am still resetting its uh, slots and accessories and settings every time I boot it up. However, Henry Corbis at Reactive Micro sells a battery that looks exactly like the one in this eBay auction, and he lists it as a ROM 3 battery, and it seems to have the same statistics. So I'm wondering, is there a difference between the ROM 1 and the ROM 3 battery? Is one of these mislabeled? It's the same the same battery. Uh, it's just that the uh, the ROM 3 has the battery case where you, where you can snap it open and just pop it out. And with the ROM 1, the battery is actually soldered to the motherboard. And there were instructions or there's a, a hack, I guess, for the, the ROM 1 where you can take that battery and... and you, you clip the old one out and, and the remaining posts that stick up from the motherboard, you can twist the leads on that battery around those posts and it'll work that way, which I think is why the leads on that, that battery are curled like that. Oh, that makes sense. I guess that also explains why Henry sells an Apple pack for the ROM one, but it's not actually a battery pack. It's a way to use AAA batteries to power the pram on your Apple II, because then once you have that accessory installed, then it becomes snap in and snap out, just like the ROM 3. I was not aware that he sold that. Yeah, when I first had my Apple II GS battery die on me, I asked Henry at Kansas Fest, do you have anything that you can do for me? And he sold me that, and it's only 9 bucks. If you want to buy the ROM 3 battery from him, it's 8 bucks. And either one of those is a buck cheaper than the one that's on eBay. So might as well keep your money in the Apple II community and buy from Henry. That's still cheaper than um, Radio Shack. You can actually buy that battery at Radio Shack, but they charge like $22 for it. Well, that's Radio Shack for you. How well do you know your Apple soundtrack? See if you can name the game. Well, thank you for everybody who entered last month's name the game contest again the prize is going to be either a 25 dollars discount off kansas fest registration or a kansas fest 2011 shirt and the game that you had to name sounded something like this and the name of that game was out of this world have either of you ever played that i did years ago did you ever finish it? I think I was able to finish it, but it has been so long since I played it, I can't remember. I never played it on the Apple II. I did play it for the Super Nintendo, but as many people know, the Super Nintendo and the Apple II GS actually shared the same main processor, which I think is what allowed Burger Becky to port it under Interplay. If you haven't played either of those versions, you will get your chance to play Out of This World when it comes out for the iPad later this year. Though whether it'll be known by its American name of Out of This World or its international name of Another World, I don't know. Now I'm hoping that they'll follow that up with releasing an iOS port of the sequel, Heart of the Alien, which was previously released only for the Sega CD, making it rather inaccessible. We had several people who got that game correct, and the winner is Jeremy Rand. I'll be contacting you, Jeremy. I hope to see you at Kansas Fest this year, but if not... Just give us your shirt size, and I'll send you a shirt for Kansas Fest 2011. Congratulations, Jeremy. What do we have as a prize for this month's contest? 
Well, this month, Henry Corbus, who we actually mentioned earlier in the show, uh, of Reactive Micro, has uh, donated a prize. The prize is either a 20% one-time discount on any item that he sells or a $50 credit that I guess you can uh, use with several items. Um, so if you if you win this, we'll put you in touch with Henry and you let him know and he will hook you up. Wow, very generous. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Henry. And to win that, all you have to do is name this game. Send your guesses who named the game at open-apple.net. You have until, let's say, 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Saturday, June 4th to get your entry in. Also, this is a learning process for this show, and we have decided that the most often that a person can win is quarterly. So the first winner of the Name the Game contest was announced in March, and that person is now eligible again to enter in June, and that person is Wade Clark, whose name I think we've somehow mentioned in every episode of Open Apple. Another name we've always mentioned is Brian Weiser, so hello, Brian. You know, a game that was marketed, at least in some of the previews I've read, as similar to Out of This World was... Outland, a game that just came out in the last week or two for the Xbox uh, 360. It's a downloadable game. Outland, is that the... That's not the one that preceded uh, Fallout. Uh, I think it? that's Wasteland. Oh, Wasteland and Outland. Oh, okay, it's yeah. a land. I... <laughs> Are either of you Xbox gamers? No, I'm I am not. not. No. Well, fortunately, my friend Chris is, and he's still here. Hi, Chris. Hello, Ken, again. So I downloaded Outland, which, like I said, was described as a cross between Out of This World and Ikaruga. Yeah, I was going to mention that, yeah. Ikaruga being a, what some people would call a shmup or shoot 'em up It's a vertical scrolling shooter that came out probably about a dozen years ago, probably, I think, for the Sega Saturn. And it was also the last round of the competition that was held at PAX East, which is the video game convention that uh, our show's first guest, Andy Malloy, and I attended. So I downloaded Outland. I played the demo. I didn't pay for the full version, so I could only play it for the first five minutes or so. And I understand you did the same, Chris. What did you think of it? I thought it was pretty cool. And uh, But on a technical note, it, I think it was Dreamcast that Ikaruga was first released on. Or it was Game... No. Was it GameCube or Dreamcast? It, I believe it was Dreamcast first and then GameCube. I'm sure you can look So regardless, your point is that I'm wrong. You, well, it... <laughs> Technicalities. I got to give some credit to Sega. I'm, I'm a big Sega fan. But Fair uh, <laughs> uh, no, uh, Outland was fun. It was um, <laughs> the art style was really cool in in the way that it was like uh, out of this world was a really simple animated style with a lot of frames of animation and, and obviously hand done with a lot of nice touches and a lot of real really cool color work. Yeah, just a lot of fun. Uh, great, you know feel to the controls and uh yeah it's a definitely a fun game i'll probably be picking up eventually yeah out of this world the animation style was done with rotoscoping mm -hmm. which at that time was fairly new to the realm of video games and created a look that was simultaneously blocky and realistic because they started off with real images and then turned it into computer animation and nowadays they do what's technically just an advanced form of rotoscoping where the character is in 3D, but they are doing motion capture to actually capture someone's movement in a 3D space so they can animate a 3D object in in that style instead of just tracing over a 2D image like they did with like Prince of Persia and things like that. Yeah, the 
Similarity to Ikaruga came from the fact that in Ikaruga, you can change the color of your ship, and when you're black, you can absorb black bullets and get killed by white, and when you're white, vice versa. And in Outland, you can change your color between, I think, just red and blue, and different enemies can hurt you and different platforms you can stand on. Overall, though, I didn't really find it to be nowhere near as much like Out of This World as I expected. It wasn't too much of a puzzler. It was more action-oriented than Out of This World. It was also much faster-paced than mm-hmm. Out of This World was, which Out of This World could almost be described as plotting at times. Mm-hmm. But I really enjoyed both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see Out of This World's style being continued in things like, not in its graphical style, but its actual gameplay style in games like Portal, where it's more of a puzzle-based. You know, you, you're stuck in a certain area until you can figure out what, exactly what you're supposed to do to move on to the next mm-hmm. space. Uh, which was also quite awesome. Portal 2 is game of the year so far. Fantastic. But not for the Apple II. But not for the Apple II, no. Not yet, anyway. It's up to you guys to port it over. <laughs> ah, the gauntlet has been thrown. <laughs> that is a challenge I want to see met at Hackfest this year. <laughs> I've seen it done in Flash, and, and I bet you could probably simplify that version. <laughs> I actually did play the 2D version of Portal that was generated for Flash, and I... Sent it around to some Apple II users, I think Kelvin Sherlock, and I said, why can't we do this? Why can't we port it or write our own? And he had a long list of reasons why it couldn't be done, but you know, there have been many other things that have been said the Apple II couldn't do. Yeah, and I would think hearing it couldn't be done would be a challenge, not an uh, impossibility. Well, you heard it here first on Open Apple Portal coming <laughs> for the Apple II. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. So one of the people that I follow on Twitter is uh, John Romero, who most game players are, are aware of. He uh, has a long history of a long history of game development dating back to, in fact, the Apple II. Um, and he'd mentioned in, uh, the other day that uh, Wolfenstein 3D uh, turned 19 on May 5th uh, of this year. So happy birthday, Wolfenstein 3D! Huh, happy Cinco de Mayo, Wolfenstein 3D! You know, I actually put it on my iCal calendar about two years ago to remind me on May 1st of 2012 that Wolfenstein 3D would be turning 20 because the Apple II GS version isn't that old, but it's still a game that Apple II users can play. And I think it'd be very cool to get John Romero to acknowledge his contribution to the Apple II community some way, whether it's Juice GS or Kansas Fest or Open Apple. Uh, he tweeted at us a couple years ago, us being Kansas Fest, saying that he wanted to come to the event one year. So maybe next year will be an opportune time to invite him. Maybe next year will be the year. That'd be great to have John Romero show up at Kansas Fest, even give the keynote. No, I mentioned Castle Wolfenstein 3D in my graduate school presentation that I discussed earlier because I was indicating the debt that so much of modern technology and software owes to the Apple II. And of course, that game is based on Castle Wolfenstein, which Silas Warner created for the Apple II. Castle Wolfenstein was mentioned recently in issue 217 of Game Informer magazine. That's the May 2011 issue. It was a two-page spread on early innovators, and it showed off 12 games that basically created the genres in which they resided. For example, there was Adventure for the Atari 2600, which was the first action-adventure game. It also had Haunted House, the first survival horror game for the Atari 2600. It mentioned Castle Wolfenstein as the first stealth game. The game, the article also mentions Catacomb 3D. Have either of you ever heard of this first-person shooter? I have not heard of that. It says it came out in 1991, which would make it the first first-person shooter. And the article specifically says that Wolfenstein 3D came out in 1992, which would make sense if it's turning 20 next year. 
But I guess Wolf 3D did not create the genre. It's just popularly known as such because it was such a success. I guess we actually owe that genre's invention to Catacomb 3D. Interesting. Another classic genre, of course, is text adventures, which we've talked about often here. When I attended PAX East, I attended a presentation given by Andrew Plotkin and Jason McIntosh about how to program interactive fiction in the Inform 7 language. And Mike, you had previously tweeted that you were interested in learning more about that. You're right, I did. Unfortunately, neither of us had time to explore it, but that session, even though I had to leave early to attend another session, made it look really simple. So I went online. There were tons of online references for Inform 7. I don't read in-depth well online, so I had to go and buy a book. So I did so. There's a book all about programming in Form 7. Haven't even cracked the cover yet, but I'm hoping someday to learn enough about this language that I can give a presentation at Kansas Fest because it seems like a very accessible language as opposed to something that you need experience with programming concepts to understand, like C++ or Java. And I think that this is a topic that would really be interesting to Apple II users and could inspire them to create some pretty cool stuff. I was wondering, is Inform 7 similar to the, the Z code that uh, is used by the Infocom games? I believe so, and Actually, I think... I think it's not. I think Inform 6 was a lot more, you know, based on code programming. Uh, Inform 7 is a, is a more natural language interface where you can, you can use... Uh, certain specific, almost English sentences to to program your your rooms and your items and and that sort of thing. Okay. If you go through the uh, archives of Rec Arts in Fiction on Usenet, uh, you'll see that there's a sort of a rivalry between the Inform Six programmers and the Inform Seven fans. Hmm. Well, I think at this point in the development of the language, newcomers to the language should probably start with Inform 7, so eventually that will probably win out over the diehards. I would think so, yeah. And speaking of uh, interactive fiction tools, uh, you actually forwarded me an email a while back, Ken, pointing out a product called Trisboard. It's an interactive fiction mapping software for Windows. I spent a little time with it. It was kind of difficult to get it installed in Windows 7. Uh, but once I did, it's a pretty neat program. Basically, you open it and you get a big piece of virtual graph paper, and it has all of the... It, it's sort of like a modified CAD software, I guess. You have the templates of the different um, the square for a room and, and a line to indicate a connection between two rooms, and you can put inventory lists in there. Pretty neat software. It, it also has a feature called auto-mapping, which when I saw that, I thought that maybe as you played an interactive fiction game, it would update the map in real time. And that's not really what it does. You feed it the Z file from your interactive fiction game, and it goes through and builds the entire map out based on this file, uh, which I guess could be useful to me. That seems kind of a little spoilerish to have the whole thing laid out beforehand, but it's there if that's the kind of player that you are. That does seem like cheating to me. Yeah, a little bit. As far as the, the manual mapping, it's it's very easy to create and maintain a map as you play your way through a game. So if you have Windows, I would definitely recommend it if you're uh, an interactive fiction player. Well, I haven't had a lot of time lately to play games like interactive fiction due to my grad studies, but I was recently given a Cinco de Mayo gift of some retro video game propaganda posters. Propaganda? 
Yes, propaganda. These posters are drawn as if from the era of World War II, like encouraging nationalism and patriotism, except that they are specifically promoting uh, the worlds of Dig Dug or Joust or Donkey Kong. Oh, wow, that's cool. It says, enlist now, find your place among the flying elite. And rather than a sky filled with jet planes, it shows a sky filled with ostriches. Oh, I really like the Tron one. Stop the MCP. De-resolution is the only solution. End, End of line. line. My girlfriend gave this to me, and it really demonstrates somebody who knows me very well. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to getting these hung in my gaming room. Oh, and there's a Frogger poster, too. So, do you buy these individually, or is it a, a pack? It looks like these are available as a set only. It's five posters for $50. And when I first opened them up out of the tube they came in, I was a little confused because I remember seeing these being available from ThinkGeek, but it never really stuck in my mind because I thought they were too expensive for me to get, even though I really wanted them. What made more of an impression on me was the Atari 2600 boxes that Panic.com had made for each of their programs because the artist for those posters was through his publicity with that promotion made known to Jason Scott, who then hired him to do the inside art for the Get Lamp box set. So when I got these posters, I thought, oh, these are the Panic.com posters. And then I started looking at them. And I'm like, wait a minute. These are cooler. <laughs> and I'm much more a video gamer than I am a computer gamer. But almost all these games were made available for the Apple II. So I, you know, whether you're a Nintendo gamer or an Apple gamer, I think these are a perfect fit for any sort of gamer. Yeah, those are going on my Christmas wish list. I'll have to remember that. Mm -hmm. We got an email recently from one of our listeners, Sal, asking what the song we opened this show with. He thought it might come from one of his old 8-bit Nintendo games, and he wanted to be sure. And he is actually very close. It's actually an original song called Right Back to You by a group called The Wiz Wars, and their album on which you can find that song is called Game Boy Rock. The genre is known as chiptune, and they use classic computers from Nintendo and Game Boy to Apple II and Commodore 64 as their instruments. So it's very likely that what Sal was hearing was actually music produced on a Game Boy, and even though it's not from a particular game, I can certainly see how it would invoke that memory. Anybody who wants to know more about this show... And how we produce it can go to open-apple.net slash about, where we list pretty much every resource that we use. Although we do list the software, we haven't listed the hardware because up until recently, we've used different hardware every month. Maybe we'll add that on later. But as far as the songs go, we get all our songs from one of two places, the Free Music Archive or Overclocked Remix. And Overclocked Remix specializes in remixes of classic game songs. They're not original pieces, but they're original interpretations. OC Remix is currently having a fundraiser because I believe they are a nonprofit, and you can buy shirts and the like, but at this time of year, they're simply asking for donations. Andy Malloy, who many people may not recognize as Open Apple's silent partner, he's not on every episode, but he is consulted on every episode, recently made a donation to OC Remix on behalf of Open Apple since we use many of their songs. So thank you, Andy, and thank you, OC Remix. Thanks, Andy. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up yet another episode of the Open Apple Show. I want to thank you, Dr. Steve Weirich, for attending our show and giving us some of your Saturday afternoon. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Dr. Steve. Now, we're going to see you at Kansas Fest, right? I will be there, yes. Fantastic. It's going to be good to see you, and I hope you'll have some presentations up your sleeve as well. I have something I'm thinking about, so uh, I'll probably be showing the uh, uh, Minecraft Apple II. May have some, may have something else coming up. I don't know. Great. 
Well, we do like surprises at Kansas Fest. If you don't come up with something new at Kansas Fest, you suck. That's right. Now, Mike, I think every guest we've had on Open Apple thus far has been somebody that we've known from Kansas Fest. Why, yes, Ken, I think you're right. Maybe for our next episode, we should try to mix things up and try to have an Apple II user on who we actually haven't met before. Sounds like fun, actually. Yeah, I can think of a few people. Let's chat offline. Sure. Cool. Well, until then, Steve, I'll see you in July. Mike, I'll see you around. And Apple II forever. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Ken. And thank you to all of our listeners. We love the feedback we've been getting so far, so keep it up. Yes, please do send feedback or file a complaint. You can email Mike at mcginnis at open-apple.net. You can email me at kgagney at open-apple.net. Or simply email both of us at podcast at open-apple.net. And, you, of course, you can visit our guest's website at apple2, that's the number two, apple2history.org. Steve, I'll see you online. All right. Thanks, everybody. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. I'm very much looking forward to getting these framed and hanged in my... Hanged or hung? I think hung. I think a person is hanged. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to getting these hanged in my gaming room. <laughs> oh, I still got it wrong, <laughs> didn't I? I thought that was intentional. <laughs> no, sorry.